Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Okay, so we are going to have a little bit of a transition, a little bit of something different for the next two weeks. So uh, we had uh, Joe Slazinski here last week, and Elder Joe uh, taught you on the book of Jude. I heard that went well. I heard you guys watched a video of the pretenders singing. That's interesting. Okay. Cool. Um, we're not pretenders. Like That's good. So, so for the next couple of weeks, what we want to do is we want to look at the, the themes and the verses for our gathering. So let me just put this up here. You've seen this slide. I'm going to promote it again now. We're, we're gonna, this is going to start this Tuesday. I want to encourage you to come out and be a part of this. This is where we have a meal together, where we fellowship, where we will have prayer, and then we'll, there will be some other things, some teaching, some testimony, some worship. And I'm not going to reveal that until you show up on Tuesday, what they'll be. They'll be different every time. Uh, but I've selected some verses to go with that. Um, they're, they're on the bottom there, Acts 2, 42 through 47, John 13, uh, 34 and 35, and Galatians 6, 2, which was our call to worship this morning. And so this morning we're going to be looking at John 13, along with Galatians 6, 2, as our call to worship, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at um, Acts 2, 42. An interesting thing to note about this is pairing John 13 with Galatians 6, uh, is easy to do because Galatians 6 says that we're to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And in John 13, Jesus gives a new commandment so that the language of law or commandment is sort of paralleled in there. And we want to keep that in mind as we look at uh, these two things. So we're, we're here to sort of cast some vision about who we are as a church, what we are as a missional church, and that is to kind of cultivate fellowship within the body to strengthen who we are as we do mission work outside of the body. So, we're going to start with John 13. And you see it's not just 34 and 35, it's 31 through 35. Um, But what I want to do here is kind of give you a little bit of a shaping of where we are. So I put together a graphic for you. And and uh, so we're going to kind of go to school for a minute. And the graphic describes something that's part of the bigger picture of where we find John 13. So John 13 belongs to what's commonly referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse. So, he, so this is common in Scripture, right? Moses has a farewell discourse. Jacob has a farewell discourse. Paul has them. And, of course, Jesus has one. This takes us from chapter 13, the Gospel of John, to, chapter, to the end of chapter 17. This is where Jesus is alone with his disciples and he's not just simply bidding them farewell, although that's the big picture, but he's talking about all these different things, his love for them, how the, the counselor, the Holy Spirit's going to come. But I want you to see that it centers on abiding in Christ. So sometimes we think about liter, uh, literature, we read something or we ru- or watch a story, and it takes us from one point to a climax and the end, and it's sort of linear. But lots of times in ancient literature, we have something that brings us to the center as the focus, and that's what we're here, that's what we see here. There's fancy terms for that. That doesn't really matter. What I want you to see is there's sort of these parallels. So in the beginning, in chapter 13, we have the A part, and that has the foot washing, which is, of course, unique to John. But the other things that it parallels are the idea of Jesus talking about his hour coming, his love for his disciples, 
and this mutual glorification that happens between him and the Father. And that's echoed in the bottom. You look at the bottom, you see A with that little hash mark. That's like A prime, so there's an echo. So A, and then the echo of the same thing. And as we work closer, B, and that's Jesus talking about his departure and about the counselor, about the Holy Spirit. And then B prime in 15, 26, and 16. And, that, and then it centers all the way in to the whole idea. That the big message is abide in me, be grounded in me. Uh, and that is the, the heart of this whole whole farewell discourse. So it's just a helpful way to frame what we're doing. You'll notice something. Maybe you'll notice it. I'll point it out. Uh, that we're going to be kind of in A and a little bit in B. We're sort of, sort of to pick up the commandment to love one another. But I want you to see that framework as a way of getting a sense of where we are. Now, what I want to do is I want to read John 13, and we're only we're going to focus in on 31 through 35, but we're going to get a little bit of a big picture to kind of get some context and get us into that. As I read it, I'm just going to read um, those verses. What I want to do, I want you to be listening for what is the meaning and the intent behind the foot washing. There's more than one. What about themes of love and of glory? They're, they're prominent in this gospel and in here as well. And I also want you to notice that when John writes this, he writes about these events like the foot washing, and he orients them around something that's deeply providential. These things happen not just because Jesus decides this is a good time to do it, but in light of something providential in God's redemptive historical plan coming to pass. Because Jesus, knowing something this, does this. And so that, you see that a lot in John, and that's echoed here in these verses. You'll see it in the opening verses, in verse 7 and verse 19, in case you want to pen that down. But those are, those are uh, three different references in the section that we're looking at. So let me just read these words, and then we'll pray, and then we'll consider them together. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example 
that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we do each week, we thank you for your word given to us here. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we consider your word, as we sit under your word. May it transform not just our minds, but our hearts. May it produce fruit. May it help us to love one another better. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as a way of orienting ourselves around the sort of the big picture of this, I, I was hoping that we could just go back and remember some of these themes, the foot washing, the themes of love and of glory. And our verses introduce this long discourse of Jesus with his disciples as he's alone right before he's arrested. But it's by no means the only place where we see these themes. Glory finds expression throughout the gospel. In fact, uh, John opens up with this. He talks about glory the very first verses, actually. I can just read them to you. John 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory is something that finds expression throughout uh, the Gospels. In fact, it comes right before Jesus' time alone with the disciples. His last time with a crowd, we read these words in John 12. Just listen to him just to get the sense of it. Jesus, uh, we read this in 
John, uh, John 12, 27 and following. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken, and Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so glorification comes in a number of places here. The Father will glorify his name. He has glorified it. He will glorify it. And even the idea of Jesus being lifted up has uh, the language and the idea of glorification woven into it. So glory is a prominent theme throughout the gospel. And not surprisingly so is love. It is, after all, our our assurance of forgiveness. God so loved the world. Uh, John speaks of that as well in other places in his writings. But what's the connection? The connection between these two themes, love and glory. And, and, and what's with the foot washing? Where does that fit in? So let's just begin with the foot washing itself. And I have a couple of verses to connect us here. But we just want to make a couple of points. We're correct to see uh, that this demonstration is a demonstration of Jesus, what Jesus teaches in his other, other gospels, right? That we're to serve one another. That's certainly true. That's definitely a part of that. We can remember Mark 10, where Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. But notice something about that, that Jesus actually connects service with his death. The two go together, right? A servant's heart and a self-sacrificial heart. And so while we're correct to see the message of serving one another as central to the foot washing, there's also additional symbolism being conveyed here. Given that this act comes in the wake of not only the providential language of Jesus' awareness of his hour arriving, and also that he's going to the Father, and that we're told that Judas is going to betray him unto his death, it becomes clear that John also intends for us to see the foot washing as symbolic of Jesus' impending death. And among the clearest indicators for this comes from Peter himself, who doesn't quite get it. He doesn't understand it. And I get Peter can be a little thick-headed sometimes, but we do understand that Peter would get it if Jesus was simply saying, serve one another. If he was demonstrating that we need to be humble and serving one another, but he doesn't get it. In fact, Jesus says, what I am doing now you don't understand, but afterward... You will understand it. After what? Well, after his death and resurrection. And so the foot washing does teach us to love one another humbly, to serve one another humbly, but it also points to Jesus' impending departure, to his death. That's why Jesus says to him, who's, to Peter, who's resisting him, by the way, he's resisting having Jesus wash his feet, and he says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. For Christ's death is not only for us, but it's also on our behalf. Jesus' death is no mere metaphor for self-sacrifice. We are baptized, and when we're baptized, we're baptized first into his death and then into new life. Our being born again happens because the old sinner dies in us. And maybe we're thinking, well, that old sinner seems to be alive and kicking, but what does Paul say about that? In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I die daily. It's a regular practice of doing this. We're being conformed to the image of Christ by his indwelling spirit, which charges us to die daily 
to our sin nature and live to Christ. And so Jesus demonstrates to his disciples whom he loved to the end that he's about to die for them. And if we are not washed, that is, if we do not participate in this washing, this death, then we too have no share with Jesus. But of course, it does also demonstrate our need to humble ourselves to one another, to serve one another well. Jesus says that plainly in these verses right here. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example. So he talks about that humility as well there. But it also has to do with the death of Christ. And we want to think about that as we lead in here. This is the opening act that Jesus does in this final discourse alone with his disciples. What about the theme of glory, though? I read to you from chapter 12 about God glorifying his name in the Son, and I noted that glory is a theme that's woven throughout the gospel. But what is it? What is glory? What does the Bible mean when it says or speaks of glory? And specifically, how is glory achieved within the constructs of the intertrinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son? That's what John is highlighting here. How does that come about? As you might imagine. <laughs> That is no small question. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis discusses the subject of glory under two primary headings. The first one is fame, and the second one is illumination. That is to say, glory as recognition and glory as light. Now, Lewis admits that, it, that to see glorious fame seems at first to be inherently sinful. Can that be a good thing, to, to seek after such a thing in ourselves? Of course, it's not the case for God. But even within this very farewell discourse, even within that, Jesus does pray in chapter 17 that the glory given to him by the Father would also be given to us as well. That's a striking thought that we too would receive that glory. Lewis describes this glory as similar to the pure delight that a child takes in the praises of a parent. Now sin certainly can taint that and does taint that, but for most of us we've seen something that's a bit closer to pure in the delight of a very young child when their parental acknowledgement and praise is given to them for their obedience. Imagine that delight without the sin of pride entering it in, and you get something that begins to approach the biblical idea of glory. Jesus delights to be obedient to the Father even unto death, and that ultimate expression of obedience is met with the ultimate expression of acknowledgement between the Father and the Son, in which both of them are together glorified. When Lewis addresses the second aspect of glory, illumination, he delves into something that speaks to our desire to not merely see the beauty of God in all that he is and all that he does, but to actually enter into it, to participate in it. This he sees as the very essence of our purpose as creatures made in the image of the creator. While Lewis doesn't mention it, as I read it, I thought about our very first catechism question. What is our purpose? To glorify God. 
to enjoy him forever, to delight in him. What about the theme of love? Love, too, is something that's woven throughout the gospel, as noted in John 3.16, our, our assurance of forgiveness. But here we're told something unique, and that's this, that this love is a commandment. In fact, it's a new commandment. That's an interesting thought. What's new about it? When Jesus is asked by one of the scribes, which is the greatest commandment? He gives two as an answer. He says this, this is from the Gospel of Mark, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so to love God and to love neighbor is not a new thing. What's new? In this commandment, we are to love God with everything in us, to love others as we love ourselves. But here, Jesus tells us to love one another as he has loved us. That's the distinguishing thing here. We're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves in the commandment, but Jesus says, love as I have loved you. It's a very different kind of thing. I'm not very good at loving myself, and I'm even worse at loving others. And so to be charged to love you as Christ loves you is profound. So let that, let that sink in a little bit. It's profound, it's striking. How do we do that? I can't answer that comprehensively, but let me make one important observation. When Jesus says these words, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to believers. He is talking to a select people who have Jesus in common with one another. He's not talking about everyone. In fact, he clarifies this when he says that the exercise of this love towards one another will be the evidence to all people that we belong to Jesus. So this is a specific Christ-centered love shared amongst Christ's people. And so with that sort of quick background, let's just, Take a quick look at the passages, the, pass the verses that we have here with that background. So we read, when he had gone out, that's Judas Iscariot. So this is the, this is the event that takes place that is going to usher in Jesus' arrest and death, right? J Judas is going to betray him. When he goes out, now, and I want you to see that, this is the correlative time when Jesus is glorified. When his death is impending, when Judas is going out to betray him, now is when Jesus, the Son of Man, is glorified and God is glorified in him. It's the culmination of that perfect and absolute obedience, that inter-Trinitarian delight between the Father and the Son, that glorified. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. So there's that mutual glorification that's right there. And then there's a shift. So, by the way, just remember from the, our picture of the graph that that. The A part actually ends in verse 32, and then the B part begins here. Little children. So this is a term of endearment that John, uh, John himself uses in his letters, and here Jesus is using it. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will speak, seek me just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come, not now, but you will. Death is required for that. 
Where I am going, you cannot come, but it will. And then he gives what we just read, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So not as you love yourselves, but as I have loved you. Again, the evidence by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as I said before, I chose this passage because of the charge of Jesus to love one another as Christ has loved us. And it's my hope that we would be a people, that we would be a church that would love one another in such a manner. And we would be evidence, evidencing that in our new identity as belonging to Christ and ushering and inviting others to be a part of that as well. To bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so I want to do this to kind of land the plane, as you will, if you will, I want to ask an applicational question. Really two I'm going to ask, but they kind of go together. The first one is this. Imagine a person who is of great importance to you. Take a minute. I was going to have you look around, but I know how awkward and painful that is. So I'm just going to, you can look straight ahead, not look at anyone, and just think about the person who's most important to you. You got that person? Now ask yourself why. Why are they important? What is it about that person that makes them important? We might say it's love. Some people we are in specific relationships with that sort of dictate that. Parent-child relationship, a husband-wife relationship, a sibling relationship. They all have family in common. What about friendships? What about associates? What about people that you only see at work? or people that you only see at church. You guys give me that look. I'm, I'm awkwardly pausing on purpose. You're like, what? Something wrong? <laughs> this is kind of the point. We tend to only see each other at church once in a while, right? That's a different kind of relationship. What about the newcomer to church? What of them? What is important about them? Of course, we might say that, well, they have inherent dignity because they're human, and that's right, but specifically because they bear the image of God. Now I would have you to look around. Now I'm going to make you feel awkward and look around. This is our context, the one another context. And that context pro professes to not only have the image-bearing status among all of us, but also the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're not just made in the image of God, but you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so if our image-bearing status alone makes us worthy of inherent dignity from one another, then all the more does our elevated status as privileged with God's indwelling Spirit and grant us inherent dignity. This makes us worthy of the love of God, charges that the love of God, love that God charges us to love one another with. So here's what I want to do just to kind of get you to reflect and think about this. I want to read a little excerpt from this lecture, or this essay, uh, that C.S. Lewis writes. So he's writing this in the 40s, the 1940s. C.S. Lewis is not a theologian. He's a, he's a Renaissance um, a professor, medieval Renaissance literature, literature professor at Cambridge. He's a Christian, uh, but he's a literary professor, not a theologian. 
Uh, but he writes about this, and by the way, this is a wonderful read, and it's only about 12 or 13 pages, 15, 14 pages, depending on the, the copy you get. It's not real long. It's an essay. But he writes this, after contemplating glory, and it's the idea of fame, and contemplating glory as illumination, this, this delight in the glories to come, and, and he writes this. He says, you know, when, we're all, when it's all said and done, we have to get back to reality, right? It's nice to think about these things and speculate about these things, but we have to get back to reality. And here's how he says it. He says, meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft is open in the pitiless wall of this world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations which I've been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. The backs of the proud will be broken. He goes on to write this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations, these are mortal, mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. He writes, our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feelings for the sin in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, he writes, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ the glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. Now I know that's a lot to take in, but imagine what it means to think about your neighbor in these terms. A glory so profound that only humility can carry it. A glory that recognizes Christ hidden within your fellow believer. Christ dwelling within them by the Spirit. That certainly puts a different perspective on how we look at the other sitting in this room or our neighbor as a whole. Does it not? We're going to sing a closing song here in a minute. But I'm going to ask this question, and we'll have this question come back on the screen after the song. This is the question that you can discuss when we uh, break bread together. Keeping in mind that there are no ordinary people, as Lewis says, that every human being is inherently sacred, how can we love one another like Jesus loves us better than we do now? Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.